Welcome back to the Grand Valley Community Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you to meet Jesus and grow in faith. Well, it's it's Palm Sunday. That's what today is. It's the day of the year that we recognize how Jesus came and entered into Jerusalem. So, Palm Sunday, it's the beginning of Jesus' last week of his ministry. It's the last week before Easter. And there's a ton that happens during this last week. And we're going to talk about some of that today. But first, I want to invite you, if you've got a phone with you, you can pull open the YouVersion Bible app and go to the Events tab. And if you search for Grand Valley, you'll find the event that we have for today. And you can follow along on your phone with our scripture passages. But also, the big part of that is you can join in on the conversation. There's going to be a couple times this morning where I'm going to ask questions, and I want to invite you to respond through the YouVersion app. And then we're going to have a bit of a discussion time before we move to communion today. So this is the beginning of Jesus' last week of his ministry time on earth. And Jesus comes and he enters into Jerusalem during what's called the Passover festival. And so this is a time period where the Israelites set a week aside to remember their history and remember the fact that a thousand years earlier, Jesus, or God sent Moses to Egypt to lead the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness and head towards the promised land. And so the Passover is this reminder. It's, it's probably the biggest and the most important festival in the entire Jewish calendar. And so what would happen is Jerusalem swells with people as everyone from the surrounding area comes into Jerusalem to be part of this big festival that ends with the Passover meal. Now, during this time, Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has been in Jerusalem, but something's different this time. See, word that Jesus is traveling from Bethany towards Jerusalem starts to leak out in the city, and people start hearing this, and they go to meet him. And so the next day, news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem sweeps through, and this crowd comes and gathers of Passover visitors. And just like the kids were singing about, they took palm branches, and they went to meet him, and they shouted, praise God. The actual Greek word they shouted was Hosanna, which has the second meaning of saying, save us now. The people were crying out to Jesus saying, praise God, save us. Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. And Jesus isn't just walking in. He's riding on this young donkey. Jesus found a young donkey, rode on it, fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. Now, a donkey's colt isn't exactly the, the mode of transportation for a king, but the people were treating Jesus as a king and giving him a king's welcome into Jerusalem. See, for the last three years leading up to this, Jesus was turning all of, Ju- all of Jerusalem and all of Judea on its head. Jesus was teaching and preaching and doing miracles as he traveled, and he was basically challenging everyone's preconceived notions. See, what he taught about was that God was a loving father, that it wasn't about rules and legalism. And he taught with authority that everyone recognized and said, our religious leaders don't teach with this authority, but Jesus does. And then he preached and he talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about how God's presence was becoming real on earth in a way that was unmatched and had never happened before. And he called people to repent and turn away from the barriers that were separating them from God. 
And he was talking about this deeper, this personal relationship with God that the people could have. And then on top of that, Jesus was doing something that only God could do. He was performing miracles. He fed thousands of people at a time. And he was doing these things that people were scratching their heads and they can't understand. How could he do this unless he was sent by God? And there was something else that Jesus taught about this whole time, this three years leading up. He talked about himself and the Father being one. About how he used this term for himself, the Son of Man and the Son of God, to describe how he was fully God and fully man, come in this perfect union and stepping into the world. And this, was a, this is still a weird and tough concept that we wrestle with sometimes of understand how can he be fully man and fully divine at once. But Jesus talked about this plenty of times and tried to keep explaining it to his disciples and the people, but they had an issue with it. See, they couldn't understand how God could step into the world through Jesus, this incarnational dwelling of God becoming human, but being fully divine and stepping into the world. And so people that couldn't wrap their head around this concept started laying this charge of blasphemy on Jesus of saying that what he was, was teaching had to be wrong. And so these religious leaders and the Pharisees, well, they didn't like Jesus and they were out to get him. They were, and actually, they're present at this triumphant entry as Jesus is entering into the city. And their response to each other is, the whole world is going to follow after this Jesus. What are we going to do? And so these, these Pharisees and these religious leaders started plotting against Jesus. But what's fascinating about the triumphant entry is I, I wish we could go back and we could interview the people that were standing there. I wish we could, you know, just like Cody was saying, if we could go and put ourselves in that story and ask some of the people standing by the roadsides, what do you believe this Jesus of Nazareth is? What do you think about him? Because these people, the, the Jewish people, they knew their history. They knew their scriptures, that God had promised that one day he would send this anointed leader called the Messiah, this promised ruler, this promised leader that would come in and would change everything. And what happened is from looking at their own scriptures, these people came up with their own expectations and ideas of, well, when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will be like this. And let me read one of these passages to you from Isaiah 9. Usually we read this passage as we're leading up towards Christmas because it's one of these promises. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 9. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel. Its people will rejoice and they will rejoice before you. As the same way that people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. You will break the yoke of their slavery. You will lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms that are bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Now, if you think about a promise like that, that is a deep and nuanced promise of all these things that, that God told Isaiah to tell the people about this Messiah that would come. And that's just one of the passages 
that talks about the Messiah coming. So it's easy to see how they were you know, wrestling with what does that actually look like? What does this actually mean when the Messiah comes? And so as Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem, there was different schools of thought and different kind of camps that were forming in what they thought the Messiah would be. And everyone's trying to say, well, does Jesus fit this box? See, one of the first boxes was this group that wanted the Messiah to be a new high priest. They said that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah will step in as the new high priest of the temple in Jerusalem and will, will renew and reform the whole covenant and the tabernacle. That it'll be a, a spiritual awakening. But one of the problems there is all the priests of the nation of Israel come from one tribe, the tribe of Levi. But Jesus' ancestry comes through the tribe of Judah. So there's kind of this question of, well, how does this work out? There's another school of thought that felt that the Messiah should be a king, that would be someone that would come and and work through the political channels of the day and replace Pilate as governor, that that the Messiah would be a king that would set up a nation that would be free from Roman occupation. And still others thought that the Messiah would come as a warrior, kind of like David from the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come and drive out Rome by force, would raise up an army, kick out Rome, the same way that David ejected the Jebusites and the Philistines in the Old Testament. And these were the three main groups that kind of felt, well, the Messiah has to be the high priest, or maybe he has to be a king and a political ruler, or maybe he has to be a warrior, all coming from how do they interpret and wrestle through passages like Isaiah 9. And so there's all these swirling expectations about who Jesus is. And there's this question being asked, is this Jesus of Nazareth? Is he the Messiah? And if he is, what kind of Messiah will he be? And so that's the first question I want to start with today. And just, you know, put yourself back in that story for a moment. If you were living in the days just before Jesus was born, which version of the Messiah would you have wanted God to send? And there's no, there's no right or wrong answer to this. It's just, which one do you think you would have wanted God to send? For me, I, I think it's kind of the high priest model. I think that's what, if I was living in that day, that's what I would have longed for, of saying, no, the Messiah needs to come and renew the temple. But I'm, I'm curious, so you can, on the app on your phone, you can click the little link and you can respond and say, you know, which one you think he might be. Because what's fascinating about Jesus is we know the way that his birth fulfilled all the prophecies about the Messiah. And we have this benefit of hindsight of being able to look back at it and saying, yeah, Jesus checked all these boxes, but not in the ways that the people of the day thought. See, in fact, Jesus started very early on with his purpose and his reason for why he came. And if we go all the way back to the very beginning of his ministry, there's kind of this thesis statement moment where Jesus is in his hometown and he declares, this is what I have come to do. And let me read that passage to you. It comes from Luke 4, starting at verse 18. Jesus was in the synagogue on on the Sabbath and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up and he reads this quote from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. And everyone's watching him because the point of reading the scroll on the Sabbath 
was that the, the rabbi, the teacher, would read the scroll and then explain it. They would talk about it. But Jesus just reads this scroll and he sits down. And so everyone's watching him, waiting for him to give the interpretation. And finally, Jesus makes this one sentence message. He says, the scripture you've heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now to everyone in that synagogue, they, were, they knew this was a promise of the future. And Jesus says, this has been fulfilled today. He's making his first claim that he is the son of God, stepped into humanity, stepped into the world, and this is his purpose. Now, Jesus declares this, and then what happens next is everyone goes, no, this can't be. This is a promise for the future. How could the Messiah come from our hometown? We've known him since he grew up and he was a little boy. And so they make the first attempt on his life during his ministry, and they try to mob Jesus and kill him that day. But Jesus slips away from them and carries on. But this is what he does. Jesus, for the next three years, lives out this passage from Isaiah. He brings good news to the poor. He sends a message that those who are oppressed, that the captives should be set free. He heals the blind. He heals the sick. And he talks about this time of the Lord's favor. He talks about how God's presence is coming into the world in a new way. And he uses this phrase, this term, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, to talk about God's presence coming. And so as Jesus traveled for these three years, he had these disciples with him, these 12 guys that he picked to be kind of his inner circle to travel with him. And then there was larger groups that traveled with Jesus and walked with him on a regular basis. But these 12 disciples saw everything Jesus did firsthand. They got to see exactly what God was doing through Jesus. Every time Jesus taught about these things, every time that Jesus healed someone, every time Jesus talked about the future and talked about the kingdom, they witnessed this firsthand and they were learning from Jesus. They had this hunger and thirst to learn from Jesus more of what he was doing. And if we go back to the entrance, we go back to the triumphant entry, we, we skip ahead to when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. All these people that came to see Jesus that are, are crying out, Hosanna, that are there waving palm fronds and laying their coats down for him so that his donkey walks on their cokes, their cloaks, and their uh, palm fronds. They were hungry for the Messiah. They were searching for what God was doing. They were yearning to see and be part of what God was doing in the world and how things were changing. And so there's a question that we kind of, when we read that, we have to come to and say, in our own lives, what do we need to do to become more hungry for God's presence in our lives? What do we have to do and what step maybe do we have to take to be hungry for experiencing God in our own lives? What's in front of us? And we're going to come back to this and we're going to discuss it together shortly. So during this Passover week, Jesus spends the days in Jerusalem and then every night they actually go back out to Bethany in the Mount of Olives and he spends his nights outside of the city with his disciples. But during the days when he's in, there's times when he, he teaches openly near the temple and at different places around Jerusalem and he, he talks more and more about what God is doing. And people in the city are, are learning and they're starting to see these connections, how Jesus really is the Messiah. 
But at the same time, there's these groups like the religious leaders of the day and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they had their expectations of who the Messiah had to be, but Jesus wasn't checking off their boxes of what they wanted the Messiah to be. And so they started getting even more upset and frustrated with Jesus because the people were starting to follow him. The people were starting to learn and were starting to come to this realization that Jesus truly is the Son of God, God himself with flesh on, come to teach and come to share what it means to be in a relationship with God. And so these religious leaders, when they realized that they couldn't sway the crowds to their own side, they put their plots in action. And they put out a call that they were looking for someone to betray Jesus. And one of Jesus' own disciples chose to respond to this. Now Jesus knew that this plan of the religious leaders was going to come true. He knew that he came into Jerusalem knowing this would be his last week knowing this would be his last time with his disciples before he would be betrayed, arrested, go through a kangaroo court of a trial that was illegal under their own laws, but he would be pronounced guilty for nothing that he had done of his own. Jesus knew all of this as he rides into Jerusalem. He knew all of this the whole week he spent teaching people and spending time with his disciples. And what's fascinating is if you read through the Gospel of John, the whole Three years of Jesus' ministry is the first 11 chapters of the book. But then all of a sudden, John slows right down, and chapters 12 through about 18 is this last week. He spends more time on the last week of Jesus than he does on anything else, because this last week was important. And it comes together with the last evening that Jesus knows he has with his disciples. His closest friends he's spent three years with doing everything with. It's his last time to be with them. And he wants to prepare them for the future. And so they're gathered in this upper room. They're, they're celebrating the Passover meal together and Jesus is teaching them. And he makes this statement to them. He says to them in this, John 14, verse 12, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. This is an incredible statement. And in fact, it's one that I still wrestle with sometimes. What does Jesus mean that we will be able to do the same things he did and even greater things because Jesus will be with the Father? What does that even mean? And I've I've wrestled with this one for a long time. and, And what I keep coming back to is that what Jesus is saying is there's only one of me but there's a whole lot more of you. Jesus was still only one person. He was limited to be in one place at any given time. But his disciples, these 12 men, 11 of them would go on to be the foundation of the start of the church. And the church grows rapidly as people come to faith. What Jesus is saying is we, as the church, he's talking about us today, are able to do greater things and even more than what Jesus did when he was on earth, because there is more of us today. And when we lean into Jesus, and Jesus and the disciples are together at the last meal, um, he goes on and he talks. So he makes this statement, and all the disciples are wrestling, what does that mean? And he goes on to the next 
part, and he says just a couple verses later, he says, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him, but you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. See, Jesus is promising that when he goes to be with the Father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And this is, if you were with us last week, this is what we were talking about at the end of what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to experience God's presence in our lives on a daily basis. This is what Jesus is promising. He's saying when we have the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is with us and within us, we are able to do what Jesus set out to do. We are able to proclaim that the time of God's favor is here, that God's presence, God's kingdom is coming here and trying to break into the world in more ways than we know. God sends us to proclaim good news. He sends us to be his agents of change, his representatives in the world that are supposed to set people free, to help people break oppression, to be free, to be able to experience the joy of who God is and what it means to be in a relationship with him. That's what Jesus was calling his disciples to, to carry out this purpose from Luke 4. And so I want to ask one more question for us, and then we're going to spend some time discussing these before we we move to communion. What do you want to see God do in your life this year? What do you want to see for how God is active and working in our own hearts, in our own minds this year. And so I'm going to pull up the app on my, on my tablet here. And what we can do is if you've typed something in, it'll pop up on my screen. Um, and so for this uh, first question that I asked, and I'm just going to kind of recap what's been in here, and then we're going to open it up for a conversation. Um, so if you were living in the days just before Jesus was born, which version would you want? And it's interesting, okay, it's still changing, but the the winner is Messiah as king, that the Messiah would come to shape the nation politically, become a new ruler. Um, And then we also have both equal people saying Messiah as the high priest and Messiah as the warrior of wanting to come in and basically overthrow and take over. Now, it's interesting that Jesus didn't fit those boxes perfectly, did he? So how about for this second question, and what do you need to do to become hungry for more of God's presence in your life? And there's a couple responses here of saying, how do we realize, one person says, to realize I'm spiritually starving and to not trick myself into worldly fulfillment, to look for fulfillment that comes from God, to read my Bible more, to pay attention to what God is already doing in my life, realizing how much I fall short without him and remember what he's already done in my life become more aware of my need for him. And I want to open this up to you. And, and Jaron's going to take this mic and walk around. We're going to swap my pack out. There we go. What are your thoughts on that? If you just kind of throw your hand up and Jaron will bring you the mic and we'll talk about this. What do you, maybe what are you needing to do or what's the step you're wanting to take to become hungry for God in your, in your life? Any thoughts on this? First, recognizing that uh, I have a continued need for him in my life and then remembering as well all the things that he's already done for me and how much I have to be thankful for. 
yeah, remembering what God's already done for us is a huge motivator to say, I still want more of God in my life. That there's, there's no point when we've said, oh, we've arrived and we know everything there is and we're, we've had enough of God and we're, we can just coast for the rest of our lives. We, you know, how do we feed that hunger to know God more? It's a great point. Thanks for sharing that. What else? Any other thoughts on this second question? I guess I was just uh, reading yesterday a chapter ahead of uh, John 14 and John 15, and it, uh, Jesus talked about, if you remain in me and I remain in you, um, you will bear much fruit. And I got contemplating that, and when you look at it in light of what he says in John 14, that he's going to send us the Holy Spirit, he's going to live in us. It seems like Jesus and the Holy Spirit are alive in me. <clears throat> and so then it depends on me remaining in him. And it's a conscious choice. So much of, of what, we, um, what we do and the, the fruit that we bear depends on my conscious choice to follow after him, to seek him. And if I'm not going to invest in that relationship, if I'm not going to be hungry, um, then I'm likely not going to bear much fruit, unfortunately, even though he's, he is, he's promised he's going to remain in us and, and not leave us. Yeah, exactly. The, the key part of that is, is it's an active choice to remain in God. It's, it's not something we can do passively and just sit back, but are we actively choosing to remain in God, to hunger for him? Thanks, thanks for sharing that. Any other thoughts on this question too before we move on? I'll share my own thought. Uh, so I was the spiritually starving comment. And one thing I remember or that I was thinking when you said that is I actually don't remember or can't remember what it's like to be hungry because it's so abundant. Like I've been hungry when I'm hiking or hungry when I'm doing work, but like I eat every day. Well, apparently. So I I don't know what it's like to be hungry. And so sometimes we can trick our brains to think like we got, we got enough. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and, and it's like you were saying, it's that conscious choice of what am I actually have enough of? Do I have enough of uh, food, water, shelter, money, things to do? Or do I have enough of God? And they're, I think they're opposites. And it t- takes that daily choice of doing that. So, Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's easy when we live in a culture where you know, we have enough. And yes, there's still needs and there's still places where we need to grow and meet the needs that people have for shelter, food, water, all those pieces. But it's so easy to get complacent and to get comfortable and let our physical comfort make us feel spiritually complacent. And that, that's, a, that's a huge realization to make. You know when you have that feeling that you just need to talk but you don't want to? Yeah, that's that feeling. So going off everything, I just want to say, for me personally, I need to take more time to spend with him. Right now, it's hard with my life, but like, get up 10 minutes early just to read like one little chapter in the Bible or like pray more and sit and listen. We don't have enough time to do it, but that's our problem. We have to take the time to do it. So we make excuses not to, and we kind of have to stop because you won't learn anything unless you take the time to listen. And it's, and it's not even just about taking time. It's, it's treating that time as an investment, of treating that time of... I'm going to choose to do this, even though I'd rather have that 10 extra minutes of sleep or I'd rather, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but choosing to have that, that investment attitude with it of saying, I'm going to do this to, to build in. To expand on that, uh, I just had the conversation yesterday with a family member of 
how often it's you feel like you've got no time and you're super busy and when am I going to read my Bible? And when you get up in the morning and you say, I'm reading my Bible first, and you put it first, and you can just witness by putting what's important first in your life, your priorities change and suddenly you have time. Mm-hmm. It, it turns it around. It's, it's kind of unique. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a humbling thought that our use of time already tells us what our priorities are. And so sometimes it, you know, it is, it is a hard choice and it is something that we have to be deliberate about to say, how do we do that? I want to move to this third question. And maybe this is a question of looking forward, of saying, what do you want to see God do in your life this year? What do you want, how do you want to see God active or how maybe do you want to experience God's presence being with you? What's something, you know, for maybe to put it in, and maybe if you don't have all the, the, the eloquent words or the way you want to say it, but what are you hoping to see God do this year? On, on the app here, someone said, you know, to shape me and mold me into the wife, the mother, and the person that he has set out for me in his plan for my life. And someone's saying, I want to hear him, to see how he's working, and join into his work here in my home, my community, and my church. Any, any more thoughts to share on that? What are you looking for God to do this year? Oh, this is fancy. Um, actually, what I want to see God do this year is kind of revert back to the second question, kind of almost make me hungry, make me thirsty for his presence. Um, even, um, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard. Like Jaren said, you, you don't, we don't know what it is to feel hungry or but I really want to embrace that, and I kind of want him to just say, hey, you know what, I'm here, and this is what it's like to be hungry. That's awesome. And maybe just to encourage you on that, it's totally okay to say, God, can you make me hungry, to pray and ask for a hunger for more of him. That's, that's a totally legitimate and probably a prayer that all of us need to say more often too. Any other thoughts? What are you hoping to see God do in your life this year? This is rare. Maybe we'll just tell Jaren to stay yeah, there. Just stay no. here. Um, I'm moving soon, so I'm excited for the new adventure. And what came to my mind was um, being in a new place and having God go through me to touch other people. So people that don't believe or people that are on the fence or whatever it is that he works through me to show them that he is awesome because mm-hmm. he's done awesome in my life. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I'm hoping that God is going to help me build um, meaningful relationships this year with uh, a bunch of people around me and in the community that we're in and uh, be able to see other people's lives transformed as well as he's Mm -hmm. done in mine. I'd like to see uh, change in the community, in the city of Brandon as well. Just a a movement. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Okay, last, going once, going twice. Before we move on, any last thoughts? So, during Jesus' last evening with his disciples, he took the Passover meal with him, but Jesus did something unprecedented. He actually changed the Passover meal. He changed the steps of the meal and the process they did. And he, he created something that we do today. Um, and he gave us this command to say to do this in remembrance of him, to take communion together. And 
What I want to talk about just briefly, and we're going to talk about communion first, and the band's going to lead us in a bit more singing. And I want to talk about another step that God, that Jesus taught about and did all through his ministry, and that's baptism. Because these are two of the steps that God laid out for us to do in response to him being active in our lives. And so with communion, Jesus took the cup of wine, and for us today we use grape juice, and he took the bread, and he made this statement to his disciples that he'd been trying to prepare them for. And he said, take this in remembrance of me. This is, this is my body and this is my blood. This is representative of the sacrifice that Jesus was about to make to give up his body to, to be nailed to the cross, to die for our sins, to do this so that every barrier between us and God could be broken down and removed and we could come freely into a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus told his disciples to do this in remembrance of him. And so that's what we do today. We want to invite you, as, the, as some music plays and as the band comes up and leads us, to come up and take the elements. And the bread on the silver trays is gluten-free if you need that. And then as a way of just emphasizing that as a community of faith, we are called to serve one another. We ask that you pour the juice for someone else and then take a piece of bread for yourself and then just step aside from the table and take a moment and pray. And maybe if you walk up in a group, that's fine. Or, or even if you just want to sit by yourself and, and pray and contemplate for a moment, that's fine. And just think about what does it mean that Jesus chose to do this? That Jesus chose to willingly give himself up so that we could know God deeply. And so one of the other things that we do around here every time we take communion is we do a benevolent offering. And, and it's a way of recognizing that as God is, has helped us and met our needs, we want to meet other people's needs. And so there's two donation boxes by the doors on the way out. And I want to encourage you, if, if you want to give to the Benevolent Fund, that fund gets used to just help people. None of it stays here in the building. Everything goes out to help people in need. And so if that's something you want to contribute to, just you can fill out an offering form, write Benevolent on it, and toss it in one of those donation boxes. And so now I just want to invite you, as you feel ready, to come up and take communion together. We're going to play some music. And just take a moment to reflect on what this means that Jesus came for us. So I said before, there was two ways that I wanted to invite you to respond to this. And the first was communion that we took. And the second is actually something that's going to happen next week. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and we're having a baptism service. And baptism is this step of making this declaration of saying, you know, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus does love me. Jesus gave himself up so that I could be in a relationship with him, that, I, that every barrier and path between me and God has been removed. And baptism doesn't mean you've got it all figured out. It doesn't mean that you know, you've, you've understand it all. It doesn't mean you don't have questions that you're still wrestling through and sorting out. But baptism has been this first step of saying, we want to choose to identify with Christ and so we're going to have a baptism service as part of Easter. There's no greater, better Sunday to get baptized. So if you're interested in that, it's an open invitation. If you're at that point in your walk with God where you're saying, this is a choice that I want to make, this is a step for me, come and talk to me as soon as you can. Come and talk to me, or if you want, you can talk to any one of our elders, and, and we'll get that set up. And it's going to be an amazing celebration of what God has been doing in our lives, what God's been doing in our church and in our community. And so I want to invite you to that. And also, part of this weekend is, once again, the Community Good Friday service is happening Friday morning, 11 o'clock at the Westman Auditorium. I hope to see you there. And so let me pray for us as we close our service. Father, thank you that you saw fit 
to come into the world. That you, it was always your plan to come and open up every door and open up every path and remove every barrier between yourself and us. Father, thank you for your deep love. Thank you that you came. And so, Father, I pray that we would be hungry for you. As a community of faith, we would, be, we would yearn for your presence in our lives. And Father, I pray for the people in this room where you've been tugging at their hearts about baptism, that you would speak and you would, you would guide them to take this step, this, to celebrate this moment of saying it's time to choose to follow you. So Father, guide us this week, draw us near to you in everything we do, and show us where you are active and working all around us. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have a great week, folks. We hope this message helps you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. For more information about us, visit gvccbrandon.ca.